With the days getting shorter and the nights growing colder, it can only mean one thing. Summer is ending, and it's time to get the kids ready to go back to school. But this year is different. Many kids have been out of class since March. Some were able to continue classes online, but the consensus seems to be that it wasn't enough. Our guest this episode calls it emergency home learning. Education researcher and former teacher Paul W. Bennett says the global pandemic has exposed the cracks he's been studying in Canada's education systems. He calls for a school system that gives more authority to those closest to students, namely teachers and parents. As we enter this next phase of the pandemic and schooling, our guest reflects on what we've learned. Paul thinks we've learned lots about what works and how to move forward. Where we might see problems exposed by the pandemic, he sees opportunities. In this episode, he shares his vision for Canadian school systems, what regions he thinks are doing a good job, and how business and community leaders can help. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest this episode is Doctor of Education Paul W. Bennett. Paul is the founding director of Schoolhouse Institute, which is based in Halifax, Nova Scotia, national coordinator of Research Ed Canada, and education columnist for Brunswick News. As a leading education policy researcher, his analytical approach and broad view of the education system are well known in Atlantic Canadian business circles and across the country. A prolific columnist and writer, his EduChatter blog has been repeatedly recognized as Canada's top education blog. He's also the author of 10 books, including his upcoming book, The State of the System, a reality check on Canada's schools, which will be released in September. Paul, welcome to Bright Future. It's great to be with you, Michael. Paul, your work is on the school system in Canada. For many of us who experienced or are currently experiencing school systems in Canada, it seems like it might be better to say we have multiple school systems. There's the 13 provinces and territories that have jurisdiction over education. Then there's the separate systems within each province, so public, private, Catholic. Is it really one system or is it many? What I've discovered over the years is that it's very provincialized. Everyone looks at education from the vantage point of their province. What I've done in my book is to take a broader view, to step back and say there is a system and it has certain characteristics that are common throughout Canada from province to province. These characteristics, which I define as centralized, bureaucratic, top-down, and for the most part, a system which was ill-prepared and ill-equipped for the shock of COVID-19, which I describe as a power outage that really destabilized the K-12 system. If you think of education in Canada from K-12, you think of such structures as education centres. You think of superintendents, the hierarchy of the school system from the top, which are the superintendents, the Ministry of Education, the superintendents, all the way down to teachers, students, and parents. There's a hierarchy there, and it's developed over time. My book traces the origins of what I call the Canadian bureaucratic education state from the 1850s into the 20th century but mainly focusing on the period from 1920 to the 1990s, when in fact this modern, centralized, bureaucratic education state kind of crystallized and took its current form. And what's happened over the last few decades 
has been increasing testing, more accountability, more transparency, but not necessarily more accountability to those who the system supposedly serves, which is parents, students, and educators. Through your analysis of the system, what are the things that you think we need to understand to help make sense of what happened last spring in the first few months of the pandemic? What we discovered was how ill-prepared our school system was for anything like a pandemic. I took a look at all of the plans that had been put in place after two previous pandemics, H1N1 and SARS. And in every municipal plan and provincial plan, there was only one option for the school system, and that was shut down all the schools. Now, we know that that didn't work after having gone through three solid months of emergency online home learning. We know that the system wasn't prepared. We've had a shock, and what we discovered was that the school system functions along the lines of a hierarchy with directives. And when parents are left with their children in their homes to educate them, and teachers are in a weird way on the outside looking in, the system doesn't function all that well. How do we make sense of how a centralized system resulted in such unique experiences when we went into this remote learning situation? Closing the schools just exposes how ill-prepared education was to offer home learning, to engage students in e-learning, and how teachers were thrown into the lurch. What we call it, and this is universally accepted now, was it wasn't e-learning. It wasn't online learning. It was emergency home learning in the educational ER. Teachers were scrambling. Parents were left for hours and hours with their children. Of course, teachers did their best. I wrote a piece saying, calling it uh, doing your best education. Well, doing your best education wasn't very good. It was quite substandard. For the most part, no one wants to go back to that. Part of the sheer panic and anxiety that parents are feeling right now is they know that children have to go back to school. They're not keen on going back to what happened before, but they're worried sick about are the schools safe? Have they been properly health-proofed? And are the teachers fully committed to making this work? Part of the anxiety is after coming out of something that they'd rather not see happen again. There was a really startling piece in the Toronto Life magazine called Class Dismissed, and it described it as an unmitigated disaster. If you look at what happened from a positive lens, you'll say everyone did their best and in an impossible situation. But if you were really being focused, you'd say, my God, that was a failure of pandemic proportions. Do you think we've learned from the first couple of months as you look at the reopening plans? Yes. Everyone's come away from that with a new appreciation for how much the system was based on formula, how much it was based on hierarchies. And I think we're better prepared now to deal with the situation where there has to be more responsibility given to teachers and parents for the education of their children. 
think that's a good segue to some of the recommendations in your book coming out in September, The State of the System. It provides a series of recommendations on reforming and updating the Canadian school system. What do you think are some of the most important changes that you'd like to see? What I think has happened is that COVID-19 has brought into sharper relief some of the weaknesses and the cracks in the existing system. So people will be more receptive to some of the recommendations I brought forward. Because remember, it was just essentially a critique of how the system was working. Educational service became further and further removed from those it was serving. That is, students, teachers, and parents. What we now know is everyone was thrust into an environment where the home was again the center of education. So my recommendations are, I'm a big believer in school-based management And I think there should be a devolution of more authority to the school level and more responsibility given to those closest to students. Put students first and make education much more directly accountable to students, parents, and teachers. And I think teachers have a big role to play as we go forward. I also am advocating humanizing education. And that is not just decentralizing it, because I think if you decentralize management and control, you don't really get at some of the issues. I'm in favor of what is called the human scale education movement. And that is you think that you should focus on bringing it down to a student scale and making schools smaller, not so consolidated. We can't even operate them under COVID because there's too many students massed and packed into all these giant comprehensive school. If there is ever a time to look at smaller schools, smaller ways of organizing children, I'm in favor of smaller schools, teaching teams, cross-curricular integration, inquiry-based learning, assessment for learning, and listening to student voices and genuine partnerships with parents. They're all aided by smaller, more intimate schools. So that's my number one recommendation. A second one is teacher-centered classrooms. Now, I know that people listening to this are going to say, my goodness, no, we want student-centered classrooms. Well, what we've learned is that teachers need to be brought back to the center because what what is most essential? Have we lost sight of it? It's not just group work. It's not cooperative learning. It's not process. It really comes down to learning something to learning it for a reason, and to learning it from someone. And I think we've come full circle on this. There's also another thing, is there's a whole jargon associated with existing school system. It's called learnification. Everything is facilitated in groups. And that isn't going to be possible in the post-pandemic world. There's going to be much more intimacy, and it's going to be much more individualized. I'd like to see us change completely how we engage parents. School-centered consultation is not working. It's actually a form of parent management. And what we need to talk about is how we engage parents so that they can be partners in the school system. And I rely heavily on the work of Debbie Peshore, who says that we need to lead the parents and work alongside parents. And what we learned from the COVID-19 shock was that 
we needed stronger relationships with parents to make it work. And so I think there's more to be said for the changes that I've recommended. So I'm in favor of community-based education and community-based school management. I'm in favor of humanizing the school system and bringing it down to a student scale. I'm very much in favor of teacher-centered education, which I think we need to focus on and redevelop, and to engage meaningfully parents in education and not to see them as parents who need to be managed and guided in the raising of their children. Those recommendations are largely at that structural level, and they tie into some of the work that the conference board has done working with businesses to identify what are the kinds of skills that employers need that they want education systems to provide for them. Our work has identified that business leaders are saying the new employees that they are getting often don't have the skill sets that they hope that they would. We've often focused on the post-secondary system. Your focus is on the K-12 system. You also recommend that businesses look to this earlier stage in order to help shape the kinds of skills and the kinds of future employees they'll get. Why is it important from your lens that businesses think about this first set of educational experiences as part of the foundation for their future employees? Well, let's step back one step here. I have a chapter on what I call the big disconnect. And that is the inconsistency between what student attainment levels are, the numbers of graduates, the record numbers of graduates, and the plateauing or declining achievement among students. So there's a disconnect between what students earn in terms of rewards, marks, grades, graduation levels, and what they're actually able to do in the workplace and how well prepared they are for universities and colleges. I call this the big disconnect, and I think it's huge. It also goes by another name. It's called the preparedness problem. Educators and particularly school superintendents and directors are very good at bringing business leaders in. They see them as sources of investment. They're looking for investments in education. And I have been constantly advising business leaders to look carefully at what they're being asked to do. I don't think investing in education, the way it's currently structured, is all that helpful because it doesn't seem to be directed where it'll do the most good. I look at it this way. The critical needs are in the early years. They are reading, numeracy, and fundamental skills, including the work ethic. If you don't focus on those things, then you're actually investing in education in ways that are going to maybe increase the superstructure by funding more leadership training, or your resources are going to be absorbed everywhere but where they're going to do the most good. I always advise business leaders, and particularly those with an interest in education, don't be bamboozled by 21st century learning. Look closely at 21st century learning. Is it six skills? Is it 15 skills? Or are they so holistic and so generic that when they come to it being implemented in the school system, they amount to next to nothing? That has been the practice. Business should be asking for a knowledge-rich curriculum. I have no idea 
why they don't ask for more to be taught at a higher level of sophistication, because you can't be critical of a whole lot unless you know enough to be critical of it. You know what is the most important element of reading comprehension? Prior knowledge of what it is you're reading about. And so teaching skills of reading without prior knowledge, you know yourself, if you're a baseball fan and you love sports, you read the sports section, and you fly through the pages because you know all the players and everything. That's all familiar to you. I don't see enough emphasis. And by the way, there's a whole new movement now of evidence-based research and cognitive research, which suggests that the way we're teaching early reading, the way we're teaching mathematics, is not consistent with cognitive research. And that's what Research Ed, I'm uh, the national coordinator of Research Ed, that's our mandate is to make teachers, first of all, and then educators at all levels more aware of what the evidence-based research suggests. And it suggests how we learn, and it's not the way most schools are doing it. If the way that businesses are supporting or getting involved in the school systems are not focused the way that you think they should be, what are the kinds of suggestions you would have in terms of how businesses, how leaders should get involved to support school systems. Focusing your investments where they'll do the most good, and business leaders know this only too well, don't spread it out, don't scatter it, and I'm really leery about investing in educational leadership. I think a lot of that is to perpetuate the system as it is. It also contributes to the administrative buildup, and it doesn't get at what the issues are. For example, when you see a crop of graduates, remember that it's been 13 years in the making. And don't fool yourself into thinking it's in high schools. The pattern is set by age 15. If you can't read, think, and critically examine things, business leaders should be focusing on discovery math. What's wrong with it? Why we need to change it? Because it's an example of how not to teach mathematics. They should be focused on balanced literacy. And don't be fooled by that, because what that means is anything but phonics. And we know that uh, teaching sound association with words is very, very soundly based on research. Educators have a way of changing the wording of things. I wrote, and I spoke at the Atlantic Chamber of Commerce, I said, you know, there's a lexicon in education that you as a business leader have to learn to crack through it. And I think business leaders need to spend more time trying to strip away what some of these terms mean. So balanced literacy is code for, we're not going to teach enough phonics for your liking. Balanced numeracy means we're not really going to ensure that they know all their math facts. All these things have cropped up. Fundamentals are important. It's often said, and this is funny, we want 21st century skills. And then you say, well, 50 years from now, I still think there's going to be an alphabet. And I think we're going to have the Arabic number system. Shouldn't we master those? And that's their silence. Because, of course, that's going to be with us. And we'll be able to think our way out of any problem if we have the capacity to read, analyze, think, calculate, and figure out alternatives. 
The big question in education is when do you throw kids problems? You throw them the problems when they don't have the skills and the aptitudes and the knowledge to deal with them? Or do you wait until you build up that capacity to really, really address those problems, solve them in a meaningful way? There's a real debate in education about if we got the cart before the horse here. Are we throwing problems at children at a too early an age before they have the capacity to really analyze them and really solve problems? Are there any school systems that you think are doing a great job embodying the kinds of changes that you'd like to see, creating the kinds of systems and connections that you're looking for? I pondered that question throughout the writing of my book. And I came to the conclusion that there's no one system that has it completely right. But I can give you answers on which aspects of education some school systems seem to have gotten right. That's the way the discussion should be evolving. Because when you hear this school system is something we should replicate, you've heard this, the Finnish model is just wonderful. The Finnish model is good in certain ways, but actually not very strong in others. The direct answer, and I'll give you a direct answer, if you're thinking about student achievement, Alberta and Massachusetts have it right. If you're thinking of math and math excellence, Quebec and Singapore are doing it right. If you're worried about who's getting value for their educational tax dollars, then you have to look at British Columbia because their scores of their students are relatively high and their cost per student is lower than some of the other provinces. If you're looking at school choice, how important is it for parents to have a choice and a wide range of choices? Then you would say Alberta and Saskatchewan have the advantage. If you were thinking of, well, all that matters to me is social inequities, then you would say, well, Ontario has done an amazing job by investing very heavily in reducing inequities. And you might say Finland. When people say we need to change our whole school system to resemble X, Y, or Z, they're really telling you what their priorities are. Each school system has something they're extremely capable of delivering well. When we're thinking about where we would like it to go, do we have to make a choice or can we have elements from all of them? That's where it all goes wrong. Education is famous for having philosophical, we call it fuzzy logic. We're going to prepare students for the workforce of the 21st century. By the way, that's in 90% of all the strategic plans that you'll find in education. But of course, what does it mean? It doesn't mean a whole lot. It means different things to different people. I want to go back and say in governance, I missed that one. Who has it right in governance? Has anyone successfully implemented school-based management and governance. And then I say, yes, the Edmonton public school system is the leader in the world. And why we don't focus on learning more about why it is the world's leader in school-based management is a mystery to me. Always has been. What makes the Edmonton system so strong? Well, they know who they are. They made an explicit commitment to school-based governance and management and they did create school governing councils that had 
meaningful role in the management of the school. They trained every one of their principals to have more authority over the budget. And then they not only talked about it, they transferred a significant proportion of their budget to the actual schools. In the beginning, I was kind of shocked when I learned what they did. It was in two phases. First of all, they trained all the principals and the teachers to take responsibility for their own schools. And then they transferred budgetary responsibility more to the schools. And at one point, it was 70%, 66% of the budget went to the actual school level. That left about one third of the entire budget for the administration. What the code was, you don't need as many administrators. You need to put your resources where they'll do the most good in the schools. Now, over time, what they learned was certain things were not being done well. Too much was vested in the schools. And so they repatriated some of the resources to the center. They have transportation consortia. They actually have the sharing of resources. And they've allocated far more to special needs and implementation of inclusive education. In other words, equalizing things across the school system. My plan is really decentralize the school systems, school-managed system with school governance structures, and then district councils, which could actually distribute resources fairly amongst the various schools. I think you can't have one without the other. Switch the balance, most of the resources to the schools, but always remember you need a counterweight to address inequalities, special needs kids. You can't leave them out of the system. When you think about some of the recommendations that you're providing, the decentralization, the school control, the higher focus on a localized communities, one potential criticism is that that could very well create a two-tier or multi-tiered system where you have some schools that are in better neighborhoods and get more resources. And so we have greater inequality through that. How would you address that criticism or that potential criticism of a model that seems to put more opportunity for those kinds of differences and inequalities to creep up? I'll flip it around. We have the reverse today. We have a school system that, believe it or not, is based on equalizing things. It's symmetrical. Everything gets distributed. And what I've learned in my book makes a pretty strong case that a lot of decisions are made by algorithms. Oh, we get this grant. Let's figure out how much goes to each student. And let's just pass it down the system according to some algorithm, some standard of accountability based on equal shares to everybody. In some ways, the system is functioning that way. It's actually promoting just sameness. It's kind of vanilla. My view is put your resources into the school level, invest where it does the most good for programs to foundations and stronger teaching, if more effective teaching in the schools. Those are the two priorities. Students come first, more effective teaching, and a knowledge-rich curriculum we'd be far better off. The distribution of resources needs to be managed by what I call district education councils. And I don't think you need a huge bureaucracy. That's where it all kind of starts going back into the system that we had. And I'm very firm on this. I think there needs to be a recognition that resources need to be distributed across. We can't 
leave people out of a public education system. But keep in mind, I'm an advocate of choice within public education. I'm not, even though much of my background was uh, outside uh, public education in various roles, I played such a role in public education as an elected trustee and spent so many years realizing why we need public education that I'm probably better equipped to kind of say what needs to be done than a lot of people who stay within one system. Paul, we're all getting ready for a return to school in September. As a observer of all the plans, of all of the strategies, of the realities of that process that we've all gone through, what are you optimistic about as kids start to go back to school, both in person and virtually? I'm by nature very optimistic. I always see hope and opportunities. And you could tell from just what I said in this uh, podcast that I see lots of opportunities. Out of a problem, and this is a serious problem, there come new opportunities and new openings. And if we come out of this with a sense of how important teachers are and how they need to be at the center of teaching and learning, because we may not have that superstructure, and how it's not healthy to have everything determined by directives from the top to the bottom if you're left on your own. You need to be responsible. You need to have enough autonomy to be able to teach. I'm hopeful that we'll learn how to shift back and forth from a systematized form of education to one that is looser and closer to parents and students and teachers. It's amazing what we've learned over the last six months. It sometimes takes a crisis to make you aware of what needs to change and how you can build a better system. Let's build it back better. Let's learn from these lessons. We had a system that wasn't receptive to change, that was entrenched, centralized, bureaucratic, unresponsive to those challenges. We know School systems have to be more agile, more flexible, more responsive to the immediate needs, and that they function in a world where public health matters. I think that's a huge change. Paul, thank you so much for your time and your perspective on this system that we are all thinking about and experiencing as we get ready for the reopening of schools. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed the conversation. And I hope that it leads to further discussions, hopefully around my book, The State of the System, A Reality Check on Canada's Schools. You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jen DeHamel. Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer and Andy Joy is our writer. Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.